The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. It uh, says a new season of growing together, like that. That's announcing the dedication of this building. We, we want you to uh, be aware of it. It's on April the 7th in the evening. And we're looking forward to, uh, we've been planning for months now to uh, do this, and we're looking forward to having that evening pronounce uh, a very clear uh, setting apart of this property and this facility for the glory of Christ. And um, so I just hope you'd mark that on your calendar that, that day and bring other friends if you'd like. We've made this in such a way that you can hand it to a neighbor or someone you're interested in inviting to come along and join you that evening. And uh, you can give them a tour of the building or follow a tour that's being done at 6 o'clock and then join us at 7 for the service. And that's one of the reasons why we're preaching through Galatians in this uh, first expository series in this building as well, because we really want Christ and his gospel, his message, to be exalted and clear. And uh, so um, if you would take your Bibles now and turn, we're in chapter 2 this morning of Galatians. Thank you. And um, chapter 2 and beginning in verse 1. And um, if you're able to stand, would you stand with me now and uh, join me in listening to the Word of God being read. Galatians chapter 2, and beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But... Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. May God bless his word to us today. You may be seated. Amen. Well, I've been enjoying this message uh, series. Thank you so much, Yvonne. And um, I want to uh, begin, some of you, I've, I've really been enjoying some of the conversations that this series in sermons has aroused. A couple of clowns came to me last week after the sermon and said, we got a summary of the sermon. The Christian beverage is Coca-Cola. That wasn't what I was preaching last week. They got really off track. <clears throat> some, some of you were taking it a little more seriously than that. Um, one, of, one of you came up to me, and after I had, I had quoted from a book by John Burke called No Pe Perfect People Allowed, 
And in that book, I had mentioned last week that he says that what we need to create in the church is a culture, a come-as-you-are culture. A come-as-you-are culture. That's what we should be trying to do in the church. No matter where you are in your journey toward the Lord, no matter how confused you might be, we should try to create in the church a come-as-you-are culture. And one gentleman explained to me, yes, but we don't want to leave people as they are. And neither does God want to leave them as they are. And I, I agree with that. That's very true. Every one of us need change in our lives. We do not measure up to what God wants for us. That is the very explanation of the gospel. But I think that sometimes what we say, when we say, come as you are, but don't stay as you are, what we really are saying is, become like us. Don't stay as you are, become like us. I don't think the gentleman that shared with me last week was saying that, but that's what a lot of people do say. In fact, that's really what the whole problem was in the Galatian churches. They were saying, if you're going to come to Christ, you need to become like us. The Jewish Christians were saying, you need to be circumcised, you need to follow the Sabbath laws, you need to listen to the Old Testament, you need to go down all these different laws of diet and so on. You need Jesus plus. That's what they were saying. So they were saying, come as you are, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, but, but become like us before or on the gateway to, to being like Jesus. And uh, I don't think that's what Paul wants to see taught. In fact, in, in, in very succinct terms, that's called legalism. It's called legalism. Now I want to say that <clears throat> preaching through Galatians is proving challenging for me. And one of the reasons it's proving to be challenging for me, maybe the best way I could explain it is, probably this is an oxymoron, but can you imagine doing a group triage? If you walked into an emergency ward in one of the Winnipeg hospitals, and you had a doctor that came out and she or he said to the whole group, draw back the curtain, everyone. I'm going to diagnose all of you and treat all of you all at once. You know, tri triage tries to discern the priority of need so that we can treat in, in the need as it comes along in the priority that's needed. And, and yet, group triage wouldn't work. And that's what I feel like sometimes when I'm trying to preach to 400 people and apply God's word on Galatians because you are not at the same place. Probably you're sitting beside one that's not at the same place. And there's parts of the truth of God that some of you need to hear, and there's parts of the truth of God that others of you need to hear, and some of you will not get the things that you stumble over. For example, if you're, if you're middle-aged or older, you might have grown up and had a system or an understanding of legalism that someone who is a millennial in their 20s would not, would not understand at all. If, if you grew up and it was movie theaters that you couldn't go to and you, shouldn't, you couldn't drink alcohol and you couldn't play sports on Sunday and, and, and you couldn't dance and you couldn't use playing cards, and I mean, the list goes on and on. Somebody in this room right now, as I made those lists, which some of you totally identify with, somebody else in this room is saying, are you kidding me? 
Like, it has nothing to do with your reading of the Bible and your version of faith in Jesus Christ. None of those things even relate to some of you that are younger. And so the, the tendency is to, for us to think that, yeah, young people don't struggle with legalism. I'm not sure if I agree with that. And I want to try and explain to you today why I don't agree with that. I think that you do struggle with some legalism, but if not, at least you struggle with some other ism that is detracting from the pure gospel of the grace of God. And today we want to pray, oh God, replace radical resolve with radical grace. Because radical resolve is underneath every other system of legalism that flies in the face of what the grace of God and the message of Jesus Christ is all about. I was reading just yesterday an article by a fellow that talks about grace in this way. And um, he, he described the millennial group. Now this is anybody that's born between 1981 and 1996. So that probably includes some of you. Between the 23 and 38 years of age, broadly defined. His name was Anthony Bradley. He wrote an article called The New Legalism. And he said in this article, he's amazed at the number of young adults who are stressed from regular shaming and feelings of inadequacy because they are not radical Christians. And, and he uses the word radical and missional and doing extraordinary things and so on. And he says that th there's a lot of young adults that profess to be Christians. Jesus Christ is their Lord. And yet they continually feel under this blanket of not being totally acceptable to God because they're not radical enough. And you see, this, this, this carrot, this radicalness, has become the new legalism, the thing that they're not reaching up to, and them thinking that now Jesus doesn't love me as much as they love that person. That's radical. Interesting. Nah, new legalism, he calls it. There's a book by Joe Langley called Unfiltered Grace, and I think perhaps he gives one of the best definitions of a legalist that I can think of. If you could bring it up. It, uh, he says that some, a legalist is someone who has a legal list. <laughs> I like that. A legalist is someone who has a legal list. And I think that both extremities of what I've described, the elderly and the younger people, have a list of what they think is acceptable and needed in order to be right with God. And I think that uh, today I want to push the boundaries of grace in your mind to see if you really understand the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. I think that legalists have often an OCD faith. It's an obsessive Christianity disorder. It's this tendency to be more negative than positive, more critical than encouraging, more judgmental than accepting, and more self-focused than Christ-focused. That's what legalists do. And that described Paul. Paul was totally that. The Pharisees that Paul was part of were totally that. They were uh, negative more than positive. They were critical more than encouraging. They were 
judgmental more than accepting, and they were focused on their own selves and performance. And that's what the Judaizers, this false group that Paul was talking to in the Galatian churches, that's what they were like as well when they said, you know, you've got to be, do all these things as well as Jesus. That's, a, that's what it looks like. And unfortunately, churches today, even churches that preach grace, like I hope ours is doing, churches today also have notorious residues of legalism found in all kinds of ways that soil the message of Jesus. I learned a little bit about this when I was in my 20s. I remember very distinctly in my 20s, I'd only been a Christian for maybe five years or so, and an experience or two that happened in my life, I'll share one of them with you. My brother and I, I was about 18, my brother and I were painting a house in Hanover, Ontario, where we lived, and, and um, it was a hot day, and my brother grew up in the same home as I did, but was not a follower of Christ. And uh, he said, why don't we go down to the Queen's Hotel on the corner and grab a beer and cool down for our break? And at that time, I did not drink alcohol, and I did not approve of anybody that went into an establishment where they served alcohol. And I felt that that was my duty as a Christian, to be abstaining and to basically point out and judge those that did. That was part of the legalism that my Christian journey started with. Well, you can imagine the argument, the conversation that ensued between my older brother and I after I announced that I wasn't going down to the hotel with him. The whole conversation re revolved around uh, externals and do's and don'ts and, and legalistic rules and and moralistic ideas of right and wrong. And I really regret that in the first several years of my Christian journey that I got way off track from the things that really matter, so, that, so much so that to this day when I have a conversation with my older brother about faith matters, he still sees it as a moralistic, petty conversation. And that faith is really pretty irrelevant, pretty narrow, even though I have sought to explain to him the real issues of faith. And so I think that churches can be notorious places for the residue of legalism, and it actually is an impediment to the real gospel of grace being shared and people really coming to know Christ. And so let me share with you four things that I think I did wrong back then, and I want to see if you could do a self-analysis and see if any of these apply to you. Four things that I think do describe the millennials among us that might be legalistic in a different way than the seniors among us that might have grown up with legalism in another way. And the first thing I want to say is that legalism focuses on the external behaviors instead of the internal matters of the heart. In external behaviors instead of internal matters of the heart. It's all about how you live outwardly, and inwardly you might not even be in love with Jesus, and, and that's what legalism slides toward. And young and old can do that. 
Secondly, it, it, it focuses on your performance. You are the center of your analysis, not Jesus Christ and his finished work and his payment for sin and his ongoing intercession and praying for you. You are the focus when it's a legalistic approach, not Jesus. Jesus is eclipsed by you, your performance. That's legalism. Thirdly, it's, it's all about a legal list. It's a list of rules. Now, your rules might be in, in the category of dancing and drinking, or your rules might be in the category of, yeah, I'm not a very radical Christian. I haven't gone on a mission trip. I don't go and witness to my neighbor. I don't, you know, and it's all the rules that you in your mind don't do. But it's a list instead of a relationship. It's rules instead of a relationship. And whenever you and I put a box around the things that we must do in order to be pleasing to God, we are legalistic and we have eclipsed Jesus and we've put the focus on us now, how we behave. It's a behavior improvement project instead of, of living faith in a real living God that loves you. We get this wrong, folks. We get it wrong all the time. And then fourthly, it's, 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 a, it's a religion that leads to bondage. You get out of worldly bondage and you fall into religious bondage. And it's all this stuff. Instead of being delivered from and delivered for, freed from and freed for serving and living with God, you're now, you're now still under the bondage. So give yourself a little, little test on these four points. These things will hinder your freedom in Christ, your joy in the faith. If you're a sour Christian, you might be a legalist. That's why. Because you're not getting it. You think that the gospel is the ABC that you began with many years ago. It's not. It's the A to Z of your Christian life. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that Jesus has become for us wisdom from God, righteousness from God, sanctification from God, and redemption from God. And when I read those four this morning, I was thinking to myself, do you know what? That's the A to Z. Wisdom from God that says I, got, I need God in my life. Righteousness from Jesus Christ because that's the only way I get right with this God. Sanctification is the only way I become like this God instead of me trying to do it on my own energy. And then redemption is when my very body will be resurrected and glorified with God. It's the A to Z. And that's why Paul says at the end of it, therefore, boasting is excluded because Jesus Christ has become for us wisdom from God, righteousness from God, sanctification from God, and redemption from God. See, you forgot that Jesus Christ is your sanctification, not you. If you're messed up and a sinner just like I am, then guess what? That's the kind that Jesus enlists. And so, give yourself this test. Do you, in your religious expression, in your faith expression, do you focus more on the externals of what you do than you do on the heart. Where's your heart when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night? 
Number two, do you focus and think about and obsess over more of your performance, whether you do bad or whether you do good one day? Do you think more on that than you do about Christ himself and what he has done for you and how he is always waiting for your prayer to come because he lives ever to intercede for you? Do you think more about you than you do about Christ? Number three, do you have in your mind an un, unwritten group of rules that you think that if, if, well, gee, if I don't have my devotions this morning, oh, well, it didn't go very well with prayer this morning, or, or oh, I should have done that, oh, well. And, and in that is an unspoken rule that says God's not happy with you. Are you more focused on rules than you are on the relationship? And then finally, do you really stumble over religious bondage? Or are you set free because of the grace and the freedom of Jesus Christ? He purchased for you at, at the cross. What is the gospel? What is the message that Jesus came and Paul preached? The message is that we are hopelessly broken people. We're more broken than we realize. We are hopelessly broken individuals, messed up in all kinds of ways. God looks down upon us. He sees us in our brokenness, in our pain. He, he loves like nothing on this earth can describe love. He loves you. And he sent his son as a, as a way of fixing that brokenness. But how he fixes the brokenness is unlike any other religion on earth. The way he does fixing of our brokenness is not by making you, give you a bunch of principles to live by, a bunch of rules, a bunch of have-tos, a, a how-to manual. Instead, what he does is he says, you know what? Come to me, put your trust in me, and I will take you by the hand, and we'll be in a relationship, and I will walk you out of this mess of brokenness into the clean air of grace and love. But you got to depend on me. you gotta, you got to let me be your guide, Jesus says. And little by little, he starts to figure out and fix your brokenness. As soon as you make a list of rules that you must live up to, you have switched the focus off of you and onto, off of God and onto you. And so Christianity is not a self-improvement faith. It's not a, it's not a checklist, check-the-box kind of religion. It's not a try-harder kind of faith. It is trusting that Jesus has what it takes to fix you and to lead you and to sort out your mess. And the only people, the only people that are not eligible for this offer of incredible love are those that think they don't need it. You see. And that's the very reason why God gave us this book, was to show us how desperately we need it, how we need him. The very purpose of the law of Moses that was given in the Old Testament was to show that we need help. We can't live up to the perfect standard of God. 
And so the only purpose of the law was to lead people to Jesus. And when we get to Jesus, then we realize, oh, I can't do it, Lord, help me. And he helps us. He gives us his grace and his love. And he doesn't stop once you become a follower of Christ. He keeps on walking with you till the day you die. And he says, let me live this Christian life out through you. Because there's only one person that can live the Christian life. And Jesus is his name. There's a passage of scripture in Galatians 3 where Paul writes in chapter 3 verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And so the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now I know we're going to be looking at that in a few weeks, but I wanted to refer to it again just to unpack what it is to be a legalist, what it means to be under the law instead of under grace. The two metaphors that Paul uses are very interesting. The first one is that the law is like a prison. And you and I were held captive in a prison. We were all guilty as charged under God's perfect law, perfect standard, absolute perfection, absolute holiness. You would not want a God anything less than perfect. And so under that law of perfection, in order to restore that relationship that we had with God, we need to be perfect too. And so the law came along and said, guess what, how far you fall short of that perfection. Here's how far you fall short. And then, and then we were locked up in this prison, and we, every day we woke up, the law just reminded us, you're here for a reason, you deserve to be here, you're on death row. Because that's all the law can do is just tells you where you're wrong. And we were dead men walking. We were on our way to judgment. And then this guard one day comes to our cell. We think we're walking down the road to the electric chair to judgment. But instead he leads us to another person, the guard that is, that is able to say, I can get you off. And he takes our place, Jesus. He takes our place. He says, I will die in your place. Now, you can go free. And that's what the law was supposed to do. The law was meant you to lead you to Jesus, to grace. And then the second metaphor is this guardian, a schoolmaster, a tutor. And, and again, he's, he's, his purpose is to lead you to Jesus Christ. Do you remember the story in John chapter 8? In John chapter 8, Jesus is in the temple and he's preaching, teaching every day. And the Pharisees that we've been reading a lot about caught a woman in the very act of adultery, having sex with somebody that wasn't her husband. It's interesting that nobody talks about the man in the story. And, and these Pharisees, it says in John 8, 6, that they were testing Jesus to bring a charge against him. They didn't care about this woman. And they brought her before Jesus and all the crowd that Jesus was preaching to, and they laid her down right in front on the dirt. And they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. We're witnesses. And the law of Moses says that she needs to be stoned to death. What do you say? 
you remember the story how, how Jesus went like this? He got down and he started drawing on the sand. When I get to heaven, I want to ask Jesus what he was drawing. <laughs> and then he stands up and he says to the Pharisees, he says, whoever is without sin, you cast the first stone. And he got down again. Kept on drawing. He waited a while and then he stood up again and they'd all gone. They'd all disappeared. Everyone, no stones in hand, no Pharisees around. It's just the woman alone with Jesus. Even the crowd had dispersed. No show here. And, and Jesus said, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? <laughs> and she said, not one. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, without realizing it, those Pharisees were acting exactly the way the law of God acts in our lives. It condemns us, it brings us to Jesus to pronounce judgment over us, but guess what? Once we get to Jesus, what does the word say? It says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. This is the message of grace for sinners. They thought that they'd won the day and Jesus pronounced mercy and grace over her. And so in the scriptures we see over and over again this message that mercy triumphs over judgment. Can you imagine, can you imagine if once Jesus had the woman there and just was alone with her? Can you imagine if the narrative in John 8 continued and it went to something like this? Jesus would say to her, maybe, well, okay, <laughs> I got you off this time. I'm going to forgive you, but you're going to make up for it to me, and I'm going to get you to pay me in some other way, and you're going to fulfill every demand that I have in the coming years before you get to go really free. You see, what would that be? That would not be grace anymore. That would be law. That would be just getting freed from one kind of sin and bondage and, and law only to be turned into a slave of a different kind, a religious slave. And that's what we do when we accept any form of legalism in our lives. That's what we do. I have it underlined in my notes here in red. I have to repeat this maybe twice because I just thought this morning they've got to hear this. As Christians, I say, we must not live as though Christ has placed other laws on us. As Christians, we must not live as though Christ has placed other laws on us. Now, I know that, that when I preach like this, when I preach grace and law, I, I know that there's room for ample misunderstanding. Absolutely. I do not want anyone this morning, for example, to think that, that maybe they, in your, in your own heart, you have decided you will not drink alcohol. I want you not to think at all that I'm calling you a legalist. 
if you don't drink alcohol, but I do. I don't want you to think that I'm thinking you're a legalist unless, unless you think that not drinking alcohol is going to make you more acceptable to God instead of Jesus Christ's full righteousness. Then I call you a legalist. Or if you, because of your own conscience or your own faith upbringing or your own interpretation of the Bible, have decided you're not going to drink alcohol, I will call you a legalist if you take that conscience and conviction and you impose it on some other brother or sister in Christ that has a glass of wine or something like that, then you are a legalist, you see. Because you are letting the externals and the rules and the your performance and all those four things we talked about, you're letting all of that get in the way and eclipse Jesus Christ in relationship with him and the grace that he did give you to free you from religious bondage. I'm going to... Um, I'm going to close in a minute. I, I just want to say, I, I know I didn't get to the text <laughs> that I read. I didn't think I would uh, this morning. <laughs> I thought I would yesterday, but I didn't get, it, get to it. And we're going to wrap it up next week because verses 11 to 14 are almost on the same theme as verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2. So I want you to, to, to know we're going to come back to the, the things that are in chapter 2. But I do want to say this. The scripture is very clear about grace. The message of the gospel is only complicated by us. There is a story in John chapter 6 when Jesus had fed the 5,000 and some of them who had pursued him around the Sea of Galilee and, and found him. And, and Jesus, they said to Jesus, what must we do? What must we do to do the works God requires? And you know what he said in response? John 6 verse uh, 38, I think, somewhere in there. He said, the work of God is this, believe in the one he sent. That's the work of God. The work of God is just believe. Just trust. Just put your faith in Jesus. That's the work of God. And that's all you need to be right with God. And let Jesus take you by the hand into the heart and, and into the relationship that will lead you. And so... I just want to conclude and uh, ask you to, you'll notice in the, in the insert that's in your bulletin, maybe the worship team could come. I want to just say that the insert in your bulletin that I, that I writ, wrote earlier in the week, when it says most of us are not radicals but conformists, we like to belong. Sometimes we pride ourselves in being independent thinkers only to realize that we have been influenced by social media, advertising, societal norms, peer pressure, and baggage we carry from our past. The word radical from the Latin carries the idea of proceeding from a root. A true radical is a person who becomes rooted in something that flies in the face of social norms, is willing to cease to belong in order to be genuine, is willing to pay the price. Before Paul met Christ, he was an extremist, but after he met Christ, he became a radical. I, I, I stand by all of that, but if that statement lands on you and is used to hang over your head like a hammer that just reminds you of more legal lists that, that cause you to think, yeah, I'm not a very good Christian, I'm not very radical, then if it causes you to think of more self-effort resolve instead of the grace that is given you, then 
you're not reading this right. It's not why I wrote it. Because you'll never become radical as a Christian through self-effort. You will only become radical as a Christian by leaning heavily on the grace of Jesus Christ and walking with him. Amen. Lord God, you are so kind to us. It is by your grace that you taught our heart to fear. Your law took us to the feet of Jesus and told us how much we needed him. And it was your grace, by your grace our fears were relieved because we have come to know that Jesus Christ is enough to save us from the prison that we were in. And as we walk out of this place today, Lord, I pray that we would walk as free men and women, as free people, knowing that you have saved us and we are now in your presence, and that's forever. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. I pray that you bless each one as we go from here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day. Thank you.